In today's video, we're going to chat with Venus Theory, aka Cameron, who has been a professional sound designer and producer for years, working with a bunch of awesome companies on their preset libraries, sample libraries, sample packs, etc., and just doing other otherwise production work. And he runs a YouTube channel with over 200,000 subscribers. So if you want to fit in any of those niches and that sounds interesting to you, check out this video to learn more directly from the guy. Yeah, so I'm Cameron, better known as Venus Theory. I'm a musician, sound designer, YouTube person, YouTuber, whatever you want to call it. And uh, I work full time in the music industry doing all of the above, really. <laughs> it's about all there is to it. I make noises and I write music and I do work with, you know, like writing music for apps and things like that. I've done some like short film things. I've got my own music. And then I've worked with a lot of companies, I really can't name all of them offhand, uh, doing preset design for hardware and software. I've done demo tracks that have shipped with different DAWs. I've written a ton of demo music for, you know, like plugins and stuff like that and trailers for these things. I've done a ton of preset design for a bunch of plugins. And then I've done a lot of sound design for sample packs and loop packs that are either in the DAW or like on services like Splice or Loop Masters or whatever or um sound design for other plugins and stuff you know like contact libraries or mm -hmm. things like that so a little bit of everything really <laughs> well when you do the the preset type stuff like are you named inside of the plugins like every you know every time you buy a synth there's almost inevitably a richard devine richard divine I forget how you right yeah anymore yeah i'm very very picky about that at first i wasn't super picky about it just because like a lot of the times to get your name put on these things, there has to be a reason to have your name on there, it seems like, yeah. which seems weird. But I also understand that where like some companies, when they ship a plugin, you know, they want the factory library to be by that plugin company yeah, or like the maker of the plugin or whatever. So I did a lot of jobs early on that were like that, where I contributed to like a factory library of something, but it was just credited as the company. And then I, I maybe get a note in the manual. <laughs> You know, as like special thanks to so and so. Yeah. Um, but anymore, I'm much, much more picky about that. Where that's just like in my, you know, writer essentially is just I need a credit as Venus Theory either in the you know sound by field or if there's a manual, I need a credit there as a sound designer and things like that. Um, yeah. So yeah, at first it wasn't super prominent, so I did a ton of work that was just essentially licensed out where I made the stuff and they bought the rights to that sound or preset or whatever but now they license it in i guess a different way where i'm paid or like i'm commissioned to do sounds for that thing i guess is the yeah. relationship there <laughs> so one of my like first questions i guess would probably be like how do you get into doing that but i guess before getting into that could you kind of walk through in terms of like percentages of what kind of makeup like like what brings you the most income as a music a person who makes their living with music stuff? Like what are, what's like the biggest thing? And you don't have to give like any numbers or percentages, but. Mm, I think probably anymore, it's pretty even between like YouTube related stuff and sound design slash like royalties from sound design stuff. Hmm. Um, Cause some gigs I've done, you know, I get like an upfront payment and then I get, you know, like a 5% of sales every quarter or something like that. Ooh. Uh, so over time, that's gotten a lot more substantial, especially as I've worked with bigger and bigger companies, you know, like at first when someone's like, we'll give you, you know, $400 plus 50% of sales, you're like, oh, sick. But, you know, 50% of zero is zero. Yeah. So, you know, when you do a big project with, you know, a major company, even if you're only getting like a 5% kickback every quarter, if a company is selling, you know, thousands and thousands of copies of something that works out pretty well. And if you do enough yeah. work where, you know, like if you do one gig like that, we're not talking mega dollars here, <laughs> yeah. you know, by any means, as I'm sure people can imagine and appreciate like profit margins are slim. And in the music industry, it's really hard to convince people to give you money for something. Yeah. Especially know? a percentage too, because then you're kind of tied to them in their payroll yeah. for a long time. 
which does get annoying too which is part of like my struggles anymore is chasing down paychecks from people because you know through youtube i have my you know youtube adsense and whatever but i've also got sponsorships with companies and then like some every once in a while you know i get a sponsorship for a video or something but then there's like affiliate sales so then i have to chase those people down every month because some of them are like manually reported affiliate sales hmm. So every once in a while, I got to be like, you know, hey, you haven't paid me in three months. Like, where's my money? <laughs> and same thing with like some of the sound design stuff where I know every quarter I'm getting 5% from this company or 2% from this company or whatever. So then I have to like go. Th I, I essentially just have a spreadsheet that just says like, this is the company. This is what they should pay me every so often. Yeah. And this is my affiliate. And have they paid me this month? So I have to go through every month or every quarter and like go through these check boxes and make sure. And the, the taxes must be horrible because oh, you're awful. getting 1099s from like probably 50 different companies, right? Well, and then too, a lot of it's international. Oh, um, God. So, you know, I, I work for like I work for a lot of companies in the US for sure. So that's it's a pain, but it is easier because like I know the tax system yeah. <laughs> a little bit. But then, you know, when I'm working for companies in Europe or whatever, or, you know, doing contract work for like an independent person where I'm like, you know, subcontracted to do a gig or whatever for, you know, some studio production house in Russia or something like that. They I don't get a 1099 because like that just doesn't exist. Yeah. So, yeah, anymore, I just have an accountant every, every year. I just give them kind of just all my invoices and then like a spreadsheet that just says who paid me how much. And then just like expenses, you know, I bought yeah. microphone cables and da da da. And then I just let them deal with that because it's it's yeah. not cheap to have an accountant do that kind of stuff. But it's like way more than worth it because I'm essentially a business and like I have no idea how to file business taxes. Yeah, yeah it's 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 a nightmare. I I I think two years ago was when I first hired my first CPA guy to just do my taxes for me. And then um this year I had to use someone else because he like retired. But it was nice just grabbing my list of 10 to 15 different various types of 1099s and all of my expenses and just giving him like those like 25, 30 documents and him just doing it for like $450. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's kind of where I'm at too, is it's like, it, it sucks to pay someone money to like do something I feel like I could reasonably do with, you know, some accounting software or something, yeah. but it's also like, is it worth the risk of me potentially screwing something up here? <laughs> yeah, I mean, my guy saved me money. He was like, if you, if you like, instead of paying this amount of tax, if you pay this sum into this like retirement account, you'll save this amount in tax. And I was like, well, you just, yeah. And that's the nice thing about it for your like, 10 times over, you know? Yeah. That's the thing is like, they, they know different like accounting tricks or like things you could do or whatever. So that's been nice, especially in my situation where there's just so many different streams of income and like so many different invoices and like VAT forums and all this stuff right. where they can look at it and go like, Oh, Hey, you know, if you did this or distributed this, this way, then, you know, you'll save infinitely more money. Yeah. So, yeah. But yeah, so that's pretty much my main chunks of income is YouTube slash sound designy stuff, but leaning more and more into YouTube over time, just cause it makes more sense. Cause as part of YouTube, you know, that's doing stuff like my own sample packs or my Patreon thing I do or my own decent sampler instruments or things like that. So I'm kind of getting to the point where I want to get more into, you know, bake the pie and sell the pieces. Right. Rather than and doing being like a supplement. Kind of just at a point where it's not worth it anymore. Yeah. And someone asked a good question on the on the sound design front. Um, how do you set your fees for sound design? Is it a project fee? Is it an hourly rate? And you talked a little bit about how there were percentages too, but how does that aspect work? Usually, like when I was first getting started, and that was pretty much purely working as a contractor where I would just reach out and say, hey, I'm so-and-so, and I make these sounds, and you know, here's like a, a little taster pack, and da-da-da. Usually that was a flat fee where mm. they'll say, we are making a you know, a drum and bass sample pack, let's say, and it needs 20 drum loops and 10 drum kits and 50 bass one shots and, you know, something like that. They'll give you just, this is what we need and we will give you $500 to make it. Hmm. And that's kind of why I got done doing that stuff is the pay for sample packs is not nearly worth it anymore. 
yeah. unless you're like, you know, doing big, big ones, but producing five gigabytes worth of audio content, you know, I mean, that takes months. Right. Especially like if you could do it yourself and yeah and so it's that's kind of that at first it's usually a flat fee if you don't really have any experience or anything like that just because usually it's kind of a risk yeah from a business standpoint you know to hire this contractor you've never worked with so you'll probably just say like we have this kind of budget and this is the type of content we're looking for hmm. so yes or no essentially um as i got more well known and as i had a bigger portfolio and as i worked with bigger companies and i'm not talking like the big companies i work with now but like you know bigger, more established companies and not just like independent sound labels. Usually with them, it was a higher budget and there was like a little bit of wiggle room where I would offer like, okay, I'm willing to do this and this is how much I would charge to do that. So I would set kind of a flat fee and go with that just based off like, how much do I want to make an hour? How many hours do I estimate this is going to take me and then add a little bit of time on top of that just for the inevitable, you know, emails and back and forth and revisions and stuff like that. Yeah. So still kind of a flat rate. And then eventually it just became commission stuff where companies reach out to me and say, we are looking for this and we want you to do it. You know, are you in? And then same thing, I'll negotiate just like, okay, this is how much I would charge for that. And then depending on the situation, um, that's where like the royalty payment negotiations would come in. And that depends on like, is the company big enough to facilitate that kind of accounting and yeah. that kind of stuff. So those are all factors that weigh in for me now as well to set rates of like, do I, you know, maybe do slightly less cost up front, but I know I'm getting a good royalty payment or, you know, am I going to be able to get like really good affiliate sales off this? So I might charge less because then I know that my affiliate sales and, you know, passive income will make up for that. Right. But yeah, usually most of the time in most situations, it is just a flat rate project. You know, we have this thing we need done. This is how much we have to do that. Hmm. So you, you mentioned over time, people would be coming to you because they specifically wanted you on the project. But when you first like when you first got your first gig doing sound design, did that come up organically? Like you met the right person at the right time or did you were you actively hunting for that work? A little bit of both. Um, you know, of course, being someone who was like really like, you know, like everyone else, I was watching a ton of YouTube tutorials and whatever. I was at least aware of people and, you know, would introduce myself whenever I could on, you know, Twitter, whatever at the time. Um but yeah, it was pretty much an active process where like I as a consumer was, you know, trying to figure out like what sample labels do I like? So, you know, I would find a company that made really good sounds that I was really enjoying, you know, let's say like someone like Black Octopus or something like that. Mm. Reach out to them. Hi, I'm this person. I make these sounds. Here's some serum presets. Here's like some loops. Here's some one shots I made this is kind of my style, you know, here's a demo track I made with all my own sounds. Let me know if you want to work together, you know, something like that. Yeah. Um, so it was a lot of that at first, but unsurprisingly, you know, like a lot of music sound design and stuff like that is a very incestuous industry <laughs> Yeah. where like, you know, one person who works at one company is also like a part-time social media manager at another company or so-and-so who's the lead on the sound design team quits and starts their own sample label, you know, a year on or whatever. So eventually, after doing that enough times of kind of more or less cold calling, you know, hey, I'm a person, this is what I make, and I want to make it for you. Did that enough times to where I built just kind of this network of companies and people. And inevitably, over time, you know, hey, uh, my friend works at such and such, and they're making a, you know, Latin house pack, or hey, my buddy and I quit and we are starting a sound label and our first product is a serum library. You know, do you want to be a part of that or whatever? So that kind of grew and grew. And then especially once I really started to lean more into YouTube and build more of a following there, you know, most of what my channel was about early on was like pretty technical sound design stuff. Yeah. So that made it really easy to just gain notoriety as like someone who is doing stuff. <laughs> You know, and of, and of course, now, especially, I think, well, at least I like to think I have skill in this industry, but I think anymore, a lot of it is just the fact that my name is attached to it provides yeah. value to the product. So now it is like, I, I don't think I have actively sought out a gig in 
I don't know, it has to be like three or four years now. Yeah, that's the, and that was just purely because of YouTube, I think it's the power of being an influencer as much as. We yeah, exactly. Because at first it was like I didn't really have a huge audience, but I was notable enough in that niche to where like and I think that's a lot of like, you know, marketing jobs now. Influencer marketing is a big part of that. So like, yeah, it's people's job to know about you. So if you're doing something interesting, like they will find you. And that was that was pretty much what happened. And I think that was certainly the big tipping point for me is like once I hit that. I don't know, 20,000 subscribers or something like that, that was when it really, really started to pick up. Hmm. And then, you know, by the time I was pushing 50, 70,000 subscribers, I mean, that was just every week was just meetings, booking gigs. Let's do it. And now it's yeah. pretty much the same but now i'm in a very fortunate position where i get to be more selective with it where i don't take yeah. every single gig just to make the bills you know i take the gigs i want to take right right so uh, on that note on the youtube side of things you've been youtubing if that's a word for about <laughs> about tubering about four years um roughly right and i don't know how many videos you've had but to, to go to new to grow to nearly 200,000 subscribers in a four-year period is pretty fast. I, I usually tell people when they get into the whole YouTube game for the first time to expect that if they publish a video every week for a year, they should consider hitting 1,000 subscribers that first year a win. Because yeah, absolutely. Slow, that totally sounds right. Slow grind. And, you know, you've hit 200K in four years. And I forget who I... I talked to someone a couple months ago that... That and I, mean, I can't remember who it was. It was another another music YouTuber, but they hit something like 100k within like two years or something, and and it was mostly in one year. I was like, that is like insane. So, what was your YouTube journey like? You mentioned you started off with the technical stuff, but like, what really set off the channel? What do you think a newcomer to YouTube might be able to prioritize or focus on to to try to grow their channel? Right. Um. Let me take a look here because I know I can see my overall subscriber count like over time. I'd be curious because I, I know it really was like super, super, super slow at first. Yeah. Um, A lot of it was just. I, I just don't think I was making content that was really worth watching. You know, I was just making content that I wanted to talk about, which at the time was like, oh. You know, here's like this really specific thing serum does that like i think people overlook a lot or hey here's like this idea that you can do with delay to create a comb filtering effect and you know stuff like that where i think what i didn't think about at the time was that if someone is interested in these types of topics you don't need some jackass with like a mustache to tell you that you know yeah. like that would be that would be like you or i walking up to like a rocket scientist explaining like orbital mechanics <laughs> <laughs> right so yeah for a long long time it was just nothing happened i think yeah okay so i've got it up here so for the first couple years that was what i did on youtube my first year on youtube i didn't really do anything i posted like a couple videos and most of it was just like music i was making at the time and i didn't really do anything the first year i did more youtube i went from 5,000 subscribers in january 2019 to 13,000 by the end of that year. So you gained 5,000 in your first year? With My first year of actually really trying, and I think it was because of just that niche thing, where at the time, this is sort of post-Seamless uh, R, Sadowick, um, Diego Stoko had a really great channel. I don't think he posts much anymore. Um, Cymatics was posting a ton of sound design stuff. Virtual Riot had his uh, series he was doing. Mr. Bill was doing a bunch of really, really interesting stuff around this time. And I was kind of just doing that, more or less. Like, this is my take on interesting, weird sound design stuff and yeah. sort of imitating the stuff I had seen other people doing. Like, oh, Virtual Riot's talking about growls. Like, oh, why don't I teach, you know, some other ideas with sidechain compression? Something like that. Hmm. So then I really dug in more, and from 2019 to 20 or sorry, this would be 2020 now. So 2020, I started off with, yeah, 13,000 subscribers. And by the end, I had 45,000 subscribers. 
that was a good year. So <laughs> that was a big year. And then from 2021 to 2022, I went from 45,000 to uh, looks like about 90,000. And now I'm up to uh, 180 or 190, something like that. 87 last time I checked. So you literally yeah. doubled this year. So and that I think a large part of that was learning about what YouTube is actually for. Yeah. So I, one of the best podcasts I heard a while ago was talking about YouTube. It was from another YouTuber and uh, they were discussing, you know, just kind of like the theory of content creation. And it was really interesting because they talked mm -hmm. about this idea that YouTube isn't a master class. YouTube isn't this like completionist platform. YouTube is about an introduction to an idea. So I think that was the big tweaking point of my content, even though I didn't really, you know, think about it that way at the time. It was just I'm doing these 45 minute serum tutorials or like really long mixing videos and nobody cares. Yeah. Nobody wants to watch that stuff. There are about 10,000 people that wanted to watch that stuff. Right. <laughs> you know, so once yeah. I really learned of just, OK, what can I do that's just something a bit more general and something a bit more useful and something that's a bit more worth watching. So I was still doing pretty long form content, but I was trying to zoom out a bit more and just talk about like, okay, what is mastering or like what makes arrangement work, you know, and just broader topics that more people could understand and not just like super nerdy sound yeah, design stuff. It wouldn't like be something like, like, like how to master synth wave so that it fits on this streaming platform. It's like exactly. More like so it's like, you know, doing that really narrow content grows, but that's that's the music tube ceiling. And that's where yeah. I have been really trying to break out of, especially in the last year or so that I've been pushing into this other vein of content. So I think, yeah, that would be my advice is learn to shut the fuck up because most people don't care and learn to tell a story. Because I think even in the last six months, the amount of just exponential growth I've seen. And I, I think a lot of that comes from, it used to be when you looked at my, uh, what I don't know what they call that in the studio, but like the burn down chart of like, where did people stop oh, watching? Oh, yeah, the, yeah, retention. It's, it's the retention graph, yeah. Yeah, whatever that's called. So it used to be, um, it looked like a sawtooth wave because people would watch the intro, they would skip to the first plugin I'm talking about and or the first step of the tutorial, yeah. you know, and then there would be another big spike and a drop because people would skip to the next step, watch the first little bit and then skip to the next step and so on. So by the end of the video, I mean, 5% of people were still watching. Yeah. Which makes sense. You know, a lot of a lot of the time when I watch these videos, all I think to myself is, dude, shut up and get to the point. Right. You know, so once I started kind of tweaking my content around that of making content that's worth watching in a way that, you know, tells a story or informs a narrative in a way that, you know, it's it's necessary or interesting to watch the entire video. Now, my retention graph is like typically every video is over 50 percent at the end. Oh it's insane. 50. Jeez. I, yeah, I normally it's unreal like, the difference that that made. Yeah. I mean, in the past, my retention was already like before I really started taking YouTube seriously and focusing on that retention graph, it was like, you know, like you said, like 10%, 15%, something bad. And then, you know, nowadays it's usually 30, 30 to 40% or something by, by right. Yeah. And, but 50 is crazy good. Um, but I mean, it makes sense. Cause it's like, if you're watching a movie, you know, or, or a documentary, whatever you watch the whole thing. Cause it's necessary. Right. right. But like a lot of tutorials, it's it's just not like yeah. it's stuff that, you know, whatever. And then there is a market for that type of content. But I don't think YouTube is it. And I think, yeah, you know, not to toot my own boot and all. But like, I think the numbers sort of prove that. Yeah. <laughs> that I mean, like, I... If you want to make super nerdy, high level content, that's awesome. And like, I love channels like that. I really, really do. But if you want to do YouTube, that's not where it is. Yeah, you know, I, you're you're going to hit that ceiling a lot sooner than you think, especially the more niche you are. It's true. The almost everyone I talk to in the either music production or music marketing world is um, if any of you kind of follow the people on YouTube that teach music marketing, we've all talked to each other at some point. It's a pretty small club. There's like seven of us. And I'm sure right. it's the same for you and all of the music production synthesizers. Oh, for sure. No. Yeah. Everybody knows everybody. Yeah. And... <laughs> Like you guys stream together all the time. You go to the same mm -hmm. stores, you have the same sponsorships. And in the uh, music marketing kind of scene, 
everyone talks about how there's a cap pretty much, you know, like I, I've talked to some of the people who are like the biggest in this kind of space that I'm in. And they, they talk about how they're trying to like pivot some of their content to more like entertainment or more broadly appealing topics so that they can kind of surpass like the cap of, of this kind of nerdy niche thing they're doing. But it's this balancing thing to where like the, the, the niches are, the riches are in the niches, so to speak. But for sure, the growth happens from like the, you know, the, like you, Patrick CC is another one. Like he switched to a broader content and went from like a hundred K to like over a million in less than a year because he, he broadened up and really focused on stories. Um, but it's a great point. And that's totally going to make a, one of the clips that get uploaded later is <laughs> you talking about the uh, gems of that, that gem of YouTube wisdom focusing. Yeah. And it's, it's a hard pill to swallow. Cause it's like, you know, nothing about my mindset has changed. I'm still yeah. this like super nerdy technical person. I love to get into like the weeds of sound and, you know, the mechanics of things and whatever. But, you know, if I thought about all my musician friends, you know, not YouTube people, notwithstanding, nobody in my circle of music wants to talk about that kind of shit. Yeah. You know, like we all love to nerd out about gear, but like that's not what we want to talk about. So it was kind of trying to figure that out and then learning to find the broader vein of something where like, okay, I really love cinematography and writing and storytelling. I love sound design. I love music, but I think what I love more than anything is just making stuff. Yeah. So that was, I think my pivot was trying to find that natural, I don't know, other side of the fish tank, so to speak, where, you know, I'm doing music and out of all the people who like music, only a fraction of those people like to make music. Right. Right. So from there, you know, a, a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of these people care about a certain genre or a certain style. And of those people, a sliver want to make it. And of those people, a, you know, nothing essentially want to talk about, like, what do different types of filters do? Yeah. <laughs> so that was my thing is, like, learning to talk about just, like, creativity as an idea. Because I think, you know, that's the stuff I'm always interested in. And like, those are the conversations I love to have with people is not about the techie end of music or whatever. Like, that's the shit I deal with all day. I want to know, like, why do we create? Why does something make someone inspired? You know, things like that. Or how do we deal with the era of creating we're in? And I think that's why I've really had a lot of fun lately with these topics that are more on like the philosophy and like psychology side of all yeah. this. Because it's more interesting. It's more applicable to be to people and it's something that breaks out of that music tube space right but it still serves all my interests you know i don't feel like i sold out for the sake of like generalized content it's just learning to make content that works for the things i want to talk about and makes sense to invest the amount of time in you know yeah the the video that made me want to hit you up and ask if you'd be willing to come on was your video talking about a lot of the things people don't want to talk about when it comes to making it in the industry. And I forget what that video was called, but you, you talk a lot about how people are kind of sold and sometimes not literally, but could be literally sold a vision of what it means to make a living in the music industry. Right. Um, and a lot of people don't realize that, that the music industry is probably the hardest place in the world to make a quick buck. It's the yeah. opposite of a get rich quick. Well, especially if you're the musician, that is. If you're yeah. the record label manager or something, then it's a different story. But if you're trying to make right. the music, yeah, I, I, boy, do I have some news for you. <laughs> and a, a lot of the people I know that make good money in the music industry, they're not like in maybe in a lot of cases, they are artists and maybe they're actually successful artists, but they also have a lot of other side endeavors that they do. Like maybe they also produce, maybe they mix and master, maybe they have and they run a label. Um, right. And it's so important to diverse. I mean, it's like investments, right? You know, you have to have not all your eggs in one basket. And that's like, I think that's what makes me survive in this industry is like, if I was just a YouTuber, absolutely not. If yeah. I was just a sound designer, not really. If I was just a, you know, a freelance scoring, you know, media composer person, probably not. But by doing all these things together, I can afford to like live and actually pursue this whole thing. Cause yeah, out of all the musicians I know only a handful of them are what I would consider like the traditional musician. 
and all of them are super broke and like are especially now you know i've known these people for years but now that we're all getting not like old but you know older and you know families and whatnot a lot of them don't want to do it anymore yeah but all the people that i know that actually work in this industry do yeah like a hundred different things just because if one month something doesn't work out the other thing compensates for that you know and the more the more safety nets you generate that way and especially if you do things wisely and build up a revenue set of like passive income streams then you can you know live comfortably because that's the funny thing is like as much as people shit on me for not being a real musician you know whatever it's like fact of the matter is is like my work pays my bills yeah i mean i I think you're like a perfect example of what like you've made it in the music industry and and the definition of made it is what a lot of people argue over because uh, some people will say that making it is when you're as when you're like lady gaga justin bieber yeah right no that's the thing is like I, i still have that with people i know from high school or whatever that are like you know, man, yeah, it's weird. You gave up on music and stuff. And it's like, no, I still do all that all the time. <laughs> it's literally but paying it's like, my mortgage right now. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing is like when you think of those jobs, that's, you know, kind of looping back to the video I made, like that's the idea you're sold is that if you're going to get in a creative industry, music or not, you know, you want to be a painter, you want to be a 3D artist, you know, there's only one Beeple. There's only one Martha Stewart. There's only one fucking Snoop Dogg. There's only one... Katy Perry, there's only one Martin Scorsese, and it isn't you. <laughs> like, yeah. but there are so many, and I'm sure you run into this all the time, especially working, you know, kind of more on the business side. There are so many people making a living in the music industry that you've never heard of. Yeah. And that's that middle class of the music industry is the most like underrepresented market. Cause it is possible. Like, I absolutely believe anyone could do those types of jobs. Yeah, it like it takes a lot of work and it does take a good amount of luck, like any creative field. But like if you want to make a living in music, that's the goal you have to look at. It's not Grammys and whatever, because like statistically, that's not going to happen. There's been so I, you know, I do I do like 15 to 20 consultation calls a week or something. So I talk to a ton of artists from all over the world and different backgrounds. And uh, there's been a kind of a surprising number of people who are professional producers, mixing engineers, mastering engineers, who they've been writing music their whole lives and they've made a living doing what they've done, but they finally got an itch to go back and try to be an artist again. But now it's like, mm-hmm. because they're a producer and mixing mastering engineer, they can make fantastic music because they've been doing it professionally. They have a ton of connections and they have money <laughs> to market it. And like, that's a path that a lot of people don't consider they be like, I don't want to do that work for other artists. I want to be the artist. Sometimes Absolutely. that doing that work can actually help out the artist side later. And that's like a big thing too. People don't consider is like when people want to be in the music industry, we mostly think of like being a musician, but like a musician serves so many purposes. Like most of the money I make on my own music isn't from, you know, like touring and stuff. It's from like, I license it out to podcasts or it gets licensed for whatever, or, you know, doing little post-production gigs. I've done a bunch of work on like, you know, some YouTubers have even contacted me where they're like, Hey, I made this video and like, could you add some sound design stuff to it? So I've done some commission work where like all, you know, they made a trailer for their next big live stream or whatever. And I'll add some like cool sounds or, you know, write kind of an underbed to go underneath a narrative or something like that. And yeah, making music for podcasts, writing music for local radio jingles, all sorts of gigs that you can do. And especially as a producer, it's like, I remember that when I went to production school, that was one of the first things that teacher said was, you can be the rock producer, or you can be the producer that people hire. And I think the, you know, the point he was making was exactly that of if you're producing for any artist, you know, pop, rock, hip hop, metal, trap, orchestral, jazz, trio, whatever, that's how you make a living. You know? Yeah. And that's, I think that's the thing people don't understand with sound design too. I get so many questions about like, how do I become a sound designer? And it's like, well, you know, being really good at making wavetables for serum is not a sound design job. Yeah. Just like being Taylor Swift is not a musician's job. 
you know, if you can be generalized enough to make enough work happen, that's where survivability comes into play. So yeah, writing tons of different music, licensing music out to things, you know, pitching your music to stock libraries, or even just, you know, being a really good arranger can be a super big thing. All these people blow up on TikTok. They need help with production. Yeah. I've even run into YouTube videos where like, it's a YouTube channel I like, and I'll hit them up and say like, hey, you know, your audio quality sucks. Like, do you want to fix that? And like, I'll consult with people on like how to make better videos and how to do better sound. And yeah, you know, even stuff where like, I'm not writing the music. I've helped a couple channels and other people with and companies too, of like, how do you pick the right music for this project? Right. And those are all skills a musician has. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the hardest part is really just finding the work when you're starting off. So I've, I've talked to people who do well in like sync for film and TV and stuff. Sorry. Mainly, actually, the person I talked to last on it was Tommy Z. I had him on the channel. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he does a lot of commercials and stuff like that. And and uh, he was saying a lot of times that the most challenging part is really just getting those first like five jobs because no one wants to give you anything. They don't trust you. They don't know what yep. you're going to do. And you might be working for free just to kind of prove yourself. And, and that was my exact experience with sound design. It was like 9,000 rejections. <laughs> and then you get like five or 10 gigs just to get your foot in the door. And let's like, once you do that, that's when things start to open up. But it, yeah. it really sucks. And I think that's why so many people get into you know music or other creative industries and then like within a year they're done yeah it's and i i don't want to scare people away from trying to be music artists because if it's what you want to do then you know do it however <laughs> um it's good to good to realize the um the reality of how competitive it is and how also knowing that how many different career paths there are because um you might be able to fund your artist development kind of path with doing music instead of working at like a hotel, you know, for sure. And that's a lot of what I get to do is I get to make sounds and do stuff. And like, it's, you yeah. know, it's not glamorous after a while. Like, you know, you can only make so many lo-fi hip hop sample packs before you want to shoot somebody <laughs> it's better than retail. That's for damn. And that's the thing is like, that's a lot of the gigs at first is if you want to do it, you just have to want it that much more than the other person. And if you stick around that much longer than the other person, you win. And eventually you get to ideally be in a position where you get to be more selective with things and you get to pursue the ideas you want. But ultimately, yeah, it enables you to do the other things you want to be doing. So by biting the bullet and learning to grow my YouTube channel in a way that maybe wasn't my initial vision, now I've opened up so many more opportunities for myself by doing you know, sound design gigs, doing sounds or yeah. things that I normally wouldn't consider, you know, my favorite things to do. I've opened a relationship with this company. And, you know, after right. a while, that all kind of pays off, which is weird to think, because like, I've only really been doing this stuff for the last couple years. And I already feel like I've hit the end game of like what I wanted to do. So but a lot of it is just grinding and yeah, being willing to eat the shit every once in a while and hear a lot of no that's the hardest part i think is yeah. learning to to separate the ego from the business right yeah that a lot of artists really struggle with the rejection because like when people get into using sites like submit hub and playlist push or groover i'm sure you've heard of all of those they you're gonna get 90 percent rejections essentially and it's it's hard as an artist because your your songs are your essentially children and you love them all. And specifically, you probably love the newest one the best, I found. Right. And the problem is that your newest song is not going to be your best performing song all the time. And 90% of the time, you're going to be getting rejections from people. And that's fine. That's just life. But the faster you kind of accept that and realize it's not personal, maybe in some cases it is personal, but it's like, who cares? Right. You know, well, and then some of it, too, is just so niche But you have to look at the lens of, like, the, the playlister, right? You know, if you're a Spotify playlist curator, it's your job to pick things that fit the exact vibe that made your playlist successful in the first place. Yeah. So, and it's the same thing with YouTube. There are a million and a half YouTube videos I want to make, but not all of them make good videos. Yeah. 
you know, and I think that's kind of the thing is like when you look at music on, you know, getting featured on playlists or getting placed in ads or whatever, you might feel that it works. But if they don't, then that's just the way it is. And people are just insanely picky with this shit because after a certain point, you have to be. Um, But then at the same time, too, it's just about sometimes hitting people's inbox on the right day at the right time, you know. Uh, Someone had 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 a good question uh, a couple of minutes ago about can you make money music musically licensing your songs, which you talked about that you, you do. Mm-hmm. Um, but how would you go about that? As I, and I'm assuming, like assuming you didn't have 200,000 subscribers or so. <laughs> no. Yeah. I mean, it, it, kind of a similar thing, you know, you can look up stock license libraries, um, even, uh, God, what was I using the other day? I, I just found out that this website has music cues and sound effects and i was like oh my god finally because I, I was editing some youtube videos and i just like i don't want to pay 9.99 a month for another stupid subscription service for samples for like you know a whoosh sound effect yeah but i'm too lazy to bring up a rope up here and go a hundred <laughs> times right so um you know pixabay yeah pixabay it's pixabay. a stock image website and they just started doing music and sound effects and stuff so there's tons of services like that where just like I did with sample labels, you know, if you just go on Google and search like royalty free music for YouTube videos, you're going to get a list of right. 83 trillion websites that do this stuff. So contact them. And, you know, if you find ones that are paid services, that's where you can start to make money. However, the problem with a lot of that is just the sheer volume yeah. of tracks. You know, like every every subscription service has a library of, you know, 100,000 songs. And then these free websites have God yeah. knows how I many I just tracks. looked up Pixabay and they have 2.7 million free images. I don't know. Yeah, so it's the same thing with the music. I mean, I think they have hundreds of thousands of songs on there. So it's for like, free, like no monthly subscription. For no, yeah, for no money. And you may or may not get paid depending on how you license your music. So if you do it where it has content ID, I think you end up getting some kind of cut. But that necessitates that the song is used in a YouTube video that gets a lot of views. Yeah. And that's where I've been pretty lucky with. I've had a couple songs that got featured in like K-pop drama videos and like weird stuff. I would never have pictured it in. It just got picked and they put it in there. So then I just get my cut every, you know, month or 90 days or whatever it is. So Hmm. that could be a good way to go about it. And then of course there are more, niche um, music libraries and like indie licensing companies and whatever. So you can, you know, find those on Google as well and just hit them up. Hi, I'm this person. Here's my portfolio of music. Would you be interested in licensing it for your production catalog? And then, you know, there's like the Warner music library or the universal music, you know, stock music library. Yeah. So there's a lot of ways to go about it, but it is just, a game of chance you know you get a library of songs together and you're gonna have to pitch it to a gajillion different services and then hopefully it gets picked and i think the way that some of mine got picked was by getting them featured on bigger youtube channels and like spotify playlists and stuff yeah and i think that's maybe where it came in is like i i have my music get put in a lot of spotify playlists of like dark moods and you know rainy day vibes and like playlists like that are you talking about like similarly theory spotify account like that music or a different yeah yeah so it gets put in the whatever playlist and i i don't know if it maybe comes from that or from some of the youtube channels i've had my music featured on in like the mixes you know like chill playlist while you study that kind of shit and i i know i've had it put in some like channels that you know have hundreds of thousands of subscribers or whatever so I'm thinking maybe that's where a lot of the luck came from was someone watching that video mix or someone listening to that Spotify playlist happened to be a YouTube person or something. Yeah. So then they, you know, bought that song off of Bandcamp or iTunes or however people get music these days and then they put it in their video. So then I get my content ID claim. Right. Yeah. I mean, so I, I, I grow some playlists. I got like 40,000 playlist followers across my playlist. And um, when I can't use my own music in the ad, I'll go on art list and find a song that fits the vibe of the playlist that also exists on Spotify 
and make mm. that the first song in the playlist and then use it in the end. <laughs> um, so I, I, I don't air it on YouTube, so the artist doesn't get content ID, but they're, they're essentially piggybacking off the fact that their song fits the playlist ID I had and they're getting a bunch of free streams from it. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the thing is if you you build up some kind of notoriety elsewhere, that tends to help your music be the one that people pick either because they know you and your work or because they watch that channel that you got featured in or they listen to that Spotify playlist all the time that your music got put in. Yeah. But of course, you know, production quality is above everything else. And I think that's that was probably what helped my music get put in a lot of those like vlogs and things like that is my music has a very specific style that I think just is very conducive to that just because I'm very into like film and game music and stuff like that. And I write a lot of stuff that is in that sort of realm. So it makes sense that like it would work well in a YouTube video compared to like, you know, a really heavy dubstep song with like bright vocals and stuff. It just, it sits under things really well. Yeah. I checked out a few of your songs on Spotify before we hopped on the call. And um, my mental definition of your music was cinematic, atmospheric, electronic music. Yeah, and that's pretty much exactly what I aim for. I, I, I always think of it as cinematic, electronic. That's like yeah. in my head, and I think of it as like organic, electronic. Good. It's kind of like the those are the two kind of key parameters that like when a song fits that, I know it's like, yeah. okay, now we're cooking. You this know? is a Venus Theory song. Exactly. And then I've got other stuff too that I just have licensed out where it's like, you know, a little kalimba going like boop, 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 and you know shit like that i've put stuff like that in like stock libraries and sometimes yeah. that works you know i've seen some of those i went through a phase where i would throw a bunch of stuff on pond 5 audio and i don't know if you know pond 5 it's one of those music yeah, licensing yeah. things and i would just make these little jingles like i I'd use like a, a uvi plugin to make like a little flamenco guitar song or i'd like mm-hmm. use one of the piano libraries to make it just like a bunch of simple arpeggios but that kind of you know make a little song and you know i i didn't think i'd make anything from it and it doesn't make good money but it made a couple hundred bucks just off of some stupid like little flamenco or piano right and things. i think that's the thing people don't understand is a lot of these projects are not big money yeah. but if you would do enough small money things that's where big money comes from yeah and, and you know like of course i'm not like rich by any means but if you want to make like a comfortable living you have to do enough work yeah yeah and when i was i guess kind of starting off with building on my on my online things my online revenue streams i would try to gauge stuff by by their success by if i got that revenue stream to what would be equivalent to like a minimum wage income so because if you think about it minimum wage some people live on that right it's incredibly difficult and I'm sure we every a lot of people watching have worked food service jobs before. It's brutal. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. But, so I, I would think like if if I can if I can get this thing to a minimum wage income and this thing to a minimum wage income and this thing to a minimum wage income, it's like you can end up with all these little things that individually are like, you know, not that good. But you have like 17 of them, right? Exactly. And and that's the thing is just it's a lot of little things that pull together, and that's what I mean by just all these. Yeah. networks of income to where now the you know the engrossing paycheck is like a paycheck worth yeah grinding for right and I, I i started a blog version of this channel this year and and i threw some ads on it i have some affiliate things on there and the ad revenue only makes 10 bucks a month now but i'm still like super excited okay we crossed the hundred dollar year mark and then i'll be super excited when it crashes the thousand dollar year mark and then hopefully right. someday it crosses the ten thousand and that's not much by itself, but when you pair with like every, you know, all the little things, it's, it's nice. You know? um, yeah. And it's kind of like any project where you're like, I want to get a hundred views on a video, a thousand views on a video, 10,000 yeah. views, you know, and same thing. I, I want a thousand subscribers, 10,000, hundred thousand. Now you're going after 250K and then 500K and then. Yeah. I don't even know anymore. That's the weird part is like, I'm not even that old. I haven't even been doing this that long. And like, I've already past that point of like the most ridiculous ideas I've had I have done so then it's just like I everything after this point is just gravy you know like I'm just so happy doing this stuff where it's like if I get a cool project then great like I I couldn't think of anything else I want to do at this point because it was like never would have thought in a million years I'd be in a position where I have you know 180,000 subscribers or whatever you get your play button 
Yeah, yeah, right back there. Oh, I didn't even notice it. Nice. That's that's really really the next thing I have in my crosshairs. I'm at like fifty three thousand or something. Like I want. Yeah, it was one of those weird ones. moments where like you you get it and you feel like there's just supposed to be like you know like Mario or something like bing yeah. like yeah, congratulations, <laughs> but it was just like it's just nothing. Cool. It's just a plaque in a box that arrives in your house. Did, did you did pretty you, much? Yeah, it was just like you get it, you look at it, and you're like, wow. I have this thing that not a lot of people will ever see. Well, back to work, done. <laughs> back to you work, know. on to the next one. Um, but that, I feel like that's the thing in so many creative industries, right? Like you're working on a, a song or an album or a video or whatever. You get it done and you're just waiting for this feeling of like, yeah, but then you're just it like. never comes. Yeah, then you hit save, you put it on Submit Hub, you get rejected and you're like, eh, whatever, doing the next one then. Yeah. I mean, it was... You know, when I hit my first 1 million streams on Spotify, I was like, I kind of imagined that would be like when I first started music, I was like, I'll never get a million streams on. There's no way. And it's kind of seemed like the surreal thing. And then you hit it and it's like, that's actually not, you know, one, it's not that much money, which I already knew. I mean, everyone knows this now, but it's also like, it's really not that much in the grand scheme of things. Like on one hand, it's awesome. It's insane. It's like a million streams, like, you know, from maybe like, 500,000 people. It's like insane, right? When you think about it, right. like how many people would that be in one place? But at the same time, you hit it and you're just kind of like, cool. You know, no one sends you like a letter of congratulations or anything. Yeah. It's just, well, it's like, you know, it's like when you're a kid, you always think about, I can't wait to grow up. And then you're an adult and you're just like, when's the part where I become like an adult? Yeah. You Like there's, there is no level up. There is no indicator. It's just like, well, cool. Yeah. And that's like, YouTube especially, and I'm sure you've noticed, like, you've got a sizable channel, too, where, like, when you look at the analytics and really think about, like, oh, I got 40 million impressions this month, <laughs> that's like a country. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like That's insane. It's like you know, all even... those eyeballs that saw your yeah. face in that thumbnail making that stupid whatever face you were making. It's like, you know, it's... Uh... But then it never ends, because as soon as you get to the point where you get those big numbers now you want the next big number yeah you know you hit a million views in a month now you're like i want two million you know you hit a thousand subscribers i want five thousand yeah and i think that's that's the danger of the creative industry at large and i think that's what so much of like the selling the dream aspect comes from is just a lot of the people that make the most money and do the best in a lot of these fields are the people dangling the carrot yeah you know and that's the that's the thing is in a gold rush you sell shovels Right. So I think that's the the other aspect that people, I think, don't consider a lot of the times is whatever you're doing, you know, music or otherwise, if you can figure out a way to make that useful to other people and something that's going to enable them, them to do their thing, like, it, you know, as bad as it sounds to say, like, if you can exploit that need, <laughs> that's where you make a living. Yeah, I, I found... Like, if I look at the journey of my YouTube channel, I grew my first 5,000 subscribers teaching how to scream, like vocal metal screaming. And there wasn't that many tutorials on YouTube at the time. This was like 2010, 2011. And I was just cranking right. out, I cranked out like 200 videos on screaming. And, um, you know, it was a thing that not many people were teaching how to do well that I knew how to do very well. And then... I did the music production stuff for a while and that grew my channel, but I think it was just more as a consistency, not that I was doing anything that people necessarily like that was that unique or that desirable, but then switching to the music business, music marketing thing. Um, my kind of initial approach was just like share everything. I learned what I'm doing for my own music. Right. And I, don't and I think that's the, that's the weird part we're in now in just this age of like digital media marketing where there's, there's the good people doing these things and there's the bad people doing these things. Yeah. You know, we're all exploiting the same needs, but there's like a more noble way to do it. And then there's like the really scummy way to do it, yeah. which is funny. But it's like, I think that's just, I don't know, that's part of life, I guess. So, yeah, I mean, it's, there's a big difference between making content that's genuinely helpful and then making content that is just helpful enough to make you buy something. Right. Like I, yeah. I, I obviously sell courses. I sell consulting. I have things to bring in money, but like when people ask me, do you hold anything back from your videos so that it's just in your course? And generally the answer is no. 
I mean, like I have some resources in my course that I don't make publicly available. Right. But I don't like, like there's not some secret magic trick that's only experienced. And that's, I think that's where a lot of the scummy stuff comes in for sure, where it's like, yeah. I'm going to give you just enough, but you got to buy the sequel if you want more. Yeah. You know? And I, I mean, I but I, that's like video games now too, right? I, the game comes yeah. out, but if you want the full game, you need the $60 add on pack or whatever. Yeah. I'm a pretty big Call of Duty fan, I guess. And I buy it every year. And like, you know, I bought it this year for 70 freaking dollars. It comes with less maps than it ever came before. You got to buy a $10 battle pass so that you can gain these other things that should be included. The game's a broken mess. And right. then next year they're going to sell another $70 thing. Um, and it's, um, you know, but it's, it's kind of like that, you know, in, in the, the music world, um, there's a lot of, and I think that's the thing you have to watch. Like if you want to, be successful in this industry the real secret isn't having the gear and having the next plugin and whatever it's being able to not buy that and put in the work yeah you know like do you really need another 1176 emulation do you really really need another synthesizer plugin do you really need another string library you know the i, I don't remember where that saying comes from but i remember something along the lines of like you don't see commercials for a Ferrari on TV because people who buy Ferraris aren't sitting around watching TV. Yeah. And I think that's the the difference from the people that work in this industry and the people that like convince themselves that it's a realistic idea is like those people ultimately are like collectors and hobbyists. Yeah. It's people that buy all the latest, greatest plugin, they make a song with it, then they wait for another plugin to come out before they make another song. But if you can just situate yourself with what you have and actually sit down and put in work. That's where you really start to develop and move forward and see through a lot of this exact thing we're talking about of just yeah. all the scummy, stupid advertising and all the stuff where you're like, oh, it's just the same thing. And that's like, that's what I get super annoyed with with YouTube is I get so many plugins sent to me anymore. And even gear, like the stuff that just shows up at my PO box. It's like, did we really need <laughs> another analog subtractive monosynth? Yeah, like, I know. What does yeah. this... What value does this add to my ability to make music? Because I've got like 10 of those floating around here already, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it's like, it's, I would imagine for you, it's the point where half of them you probably don't even want to take out of the box and look at because like- No, one... a lot of it just sits there and I, I either just ship it back or I just like sell it on Facebook or something. <laughs> well, if I'm ever in the need of a synth, although you can tell from my background that I'm not, I guess I'll hit you up. <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing i love too i always get companies that are like hey would you make a video on this you know thing we make and i'm like okay maybe you know here's what i charge for videos just because i mean at this point i am a video production agency i have all the cameras all the lighting it takes a lot of work yeah i have a big audience like i know how much my videos will make you because i've been doing this long enough where like i have my affiliate links i have all my analytics i know how much i make through affiliate links and you know, bit.ly, I can track how many people click each link and things like that. So I know what my content is worth. Yeah. And these companies will be like, hey, we'll send you this for free. Do you want to make a video on it? No. <laughs> like, and it's like you said, you know, you've as a company, I'm sure you've watched my videos. Like, do I look like I get excited about more free gear? <laughs> yeah, like, I, know. I have gear sitting in my attic because I don't know what to do with it. So the last thing I need is another seven days worth of work for nothing when I could invest that time in my own content that I know is going to do something for my own interests. I've heard that's and really been too that in synth YouTube, so to speak, that the expectation is that you're not going to get paid. They're going to send you a synth. And when you're done with it, you're going to ship it back. Yeah. You're going to ship it back <laughs> or you get to keep it. And yeah, you, and it's like, I, you know, yeah. At first, that's kind of fun, like to get a couple free things is great and all. But then after a certain point, it's just like, I can't pay my bills with free plugins. Yeah. You know, I, I'm like, going to be my, honest. My electric I, company I totally, doesn't accept yeah. NFRs. I totally exploit the having a big YouTube thing. Like, I, I don't cover music production and product reviews on my channel anymore. I used to for a few years. I did. But like every so often when I find something that I like want that's software, I'll just like email the company and be like, Hey, I have, I have this big YouTube channel and, and blog. Um, can you send me a copy? And usually they're like, yeah. And that's <laughs> the thing is like, I'm always interested in stuff that's interesting. Yeah. Like if it's a really cool plugin that does something fun or a really unique piece of hardware, 
absolutely like send it i want to yeah. try this and then like if i do really like it i will make a video about it you know right because it just makes sense like i want to yeah. talk about the stuff that's interesting to me but then it's like just all the offers you get it's like half the stuff i don't care and what yeah. how do i make a video on like a spectrum analyzer plugin how do i make an interesting engaging 10 minute piece of content yeah about a volume meter it's just not your channel like if you were white what is it white yeah. c sound or white sound studio and like there are super niche channels that do that stuff exactly yeah. yeah and like they do well but like do you need another person making that same video yeah he, he's already doing it like three times a week and he does it and that's why i plugin. quit doing so many of the things i did like i i like plugins i like gear you know like i said but after a certain point you know there's loop off there's ben jordan there's ricky tinez there's Bo beats there's i mean just so many great channels that are so much better at that stuff than I am. So why would I waste my time making that yeah. same video? You know, why not focus on how I look at something and what I can do with something? And I think that's another big aspect of what drives actual success in these types of industries is yeah. learning to do your thing and not being the next somebody else. Yeah, there's, I think like Loop Pop has like such a monopoly on that style of video, like, there's no right. way anyone could ever be a better loop hop because and that's like, you know, David Hillowitz or John Meyer or any of you know, Hunter Rogerson has a great yeah. channel or, you know, even some of the like really, really small channels that are out there. Like, uh, they all have their, own, Lowry their own specific or, voice and their own vision. And that's why they're, yeah, and they're, but that's why I keep coming back to those channels is they have that thing. And I think that's the biggest other, I think YouTube secret at least. And I, I think a lot of it applies to music is that like, you have to have content that provides value because if I make another video about like six free plugins you should have right now, some people are going to subscribe on that. A lot of people are going to watch it, but most people aren't going to follow up because why would you? Yeah. You go to the video, you see the six plugins, the links are in the description. You watch a little bit of each section of the video, you download the plugins, you go on your merry way and have a great day. I, I watched Nothing one about of that your... content exchange provided value to get you to come back. You did a granular free plugin video. I right. think that was you. And and that video was like a total flop too, which is kind of funny, but I, I think that's for other reasons. Thinking like retroactively about how I watched that video, I just like was skipping through to find like just like a right. little blip of you talking about each thing. And like you said, the whole sawtooth retention graph. Every time I see a top whatever video, if it's just like they name it and then there's a couple minutes of talking and they name it, like that's how I skim through it. Yeah, and that was the thing. I think that's why that video sucked and why I wouldn't do it. I mean, I tried to frame it in a different way that was at least interesting, but that video sucked yeah. and I wouldn't do it again. And it was it was kind of an experiment video anyway. Just There's only so videos. much you can really do with that. Like, And that's the thing is like when you watch really good production channels, like I think Underdog Electronic Music School has like one of the best production channels on YouTube right now. And I think it's because they frame their content in a way that makes you want to come back and watch them do it. Yeah, I think I right. Like and I think that's kind of where I've been aiming with my content is I'm trying to do. I don't want to make a YouTube video. I want to make a Venus theory video. Right. Right. And I think that's that's the question as a creator you have to ask yourself is like, I don't want to make music. I want to make my music. I don't want to make, you know, a business marketing firm. I want to make my business marketing firm. Yeah. You know. So I think that's that's probably the biggest secret of all is learning to get rid of the the big goal and go with your goal. Yeah. Cuz as soon as you find that you're kind of like we said earlier you're you're doing the niche thing where you're serving a purpose, but if you find that in an intelligent enough way to where it reaches enough people, that's where you can really stay consistent and not rely on just like viral growth. Cuz I think that's a lot of the things about the creative industry is in some cases, it's easier and whatever to blow up overnight than it is to have like a long career in this stuff. Yeah. But, you know. And going viral is often not well utilized either. And that's the hard part, too, because then you the expectation is there's a follow up that does better. <laughs> And yeah. then you get dropped by the label and whatever and so on. But like if you're able to maintain something and a consistent creative vision that serves a purpose and keeps people coming back for your specific thing, 
you know, that's how that's how you consistently grow and keep things stable. I had a guy book me for a call a couple of weeks ago. And the reason why I booked the call was because he had one of his Instagram reels. Like he'd been posting every week, he would post an Instagram reel. And then one of them just like went super huge. And so his Instagram was pumping and like a huge percentage of those people were going to Spotify and streaming. So his Instagram numbers like 10x, his Spotify monthly listeners like 100x, his followers 10x. And so he booked the call because he was like, I don't want this to go away. Like, what can I do to capitalize on this? Because he wasn't ready for right. it, you know? And Well, I think that's the that's the taste of success, isn't it? Because that's, I mean, that's where I'm at now is like, I suck at social media. I still don't really consider myself a good YouTuber. Where do I go from here? I don't know. Yeah. But I think that's the, that's the thing I've <laughs> learned from all of it is just like, I think I have a thing. So yeah. as long as I keep doing that. You, you must get the whole imposter syndrome thing. Oh, absolutely. I get that every so day. often where it's just like, like some days I feel like I'm a freaking badass. I built this channel from nothing. I have this business I built from nothing and people want to learn from me. And other days I'm like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. This video did badly. Like people hate oh, me. Oh yeah. No, that's every day for me is just, you know, some of the gigs I get offered or things I'm doing or like, you know, just then I sit down and have to write a video and I'm like, I don't know how to write a video to save my life. Yeah. Or even editing, you know, I'll edit a video. I'm like, this sucks. Or I'm working on music and I'm like, this is just garbage. Yeah, like you'll have no music ideas for like a week or something. Or no. Yeah, well, and that's the thing. There is. Then you're just like. After a certain point, there is no manual. There is no instruction set. There is no rules. It's just. Congratulations. It's working for you. One day it won't be anymore, but good luck until then. (laughs) Yeah. So for all of you watching, that's what you, uh, if, if you're trying to make something work and it's not working yet, that's what you have to look forward to when you finally get it to work is that you'll battle with this constant internal struggle of if you're good at what you do or bad at what you do. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Once you, once you get into like some portion of success, then you just have to question it constantly. <laughs> yeah. Because most of the time you have no idea how you got there, which like, you know, kind of like going back to just being an adult in general. Yeah. One day you're like, oh, I'm 25. I am an adult now. Oh, God. I know. I I don't really feel like an adult, but I'm married. I own a house. I have a pool and three dogs. So right. it's like... I, I'm the definition of, I guess, like an, an adult, but I don't feel like I don't feel any different than I did when I was 19. No, no, for sure. Yeah. Like I'm still mentally this like stupid 14 year old that's like plugging stuff into a guitar amp and seeing what yeah. happens. But now I just get paid to do that is the only difference. The t- most terrifying realization that that gave me when I realized that about myself was like the people who are like presidents of the countries and ruling like they're commanders of like armies they probably feel the same you know oh yeah um i i would imagine so it's they're they're in charge of like such important things and they probably still think to themselves like am i really an adult yet you know it's it can't just be well, I've, I've even had that too when i've been doing like consulting gigs with companies on you know product design or like you know i've done some like lead sound designer jobs where i'm in charge of like all the other sound design stuff and yeah, it's like, why am I in this position of authority here? Because like, I don't know. You know, <laughs> people send in their sounds, and I'm like, "Yep, that's cool with me, dude." All right, ship it. You know, yeah. stamp of approval. I'm like, "Yeah, that one's." I don't know. It might be a bit quiet. Might not. Whatever. Close enough. <laughs> Anyways, thanks everyone for hanging out. And uh... yeah, thanks for having me on, man. This was great. Thanks for watching, everybody. Um, yeah, subscribe and stuff, and I guess we'll we'll do the usual. Say bye, chat. Bye, chat. That's you. <laughs> bye, chat. All right, we'll see y'all again at some point.